0: 2nd Kings chapter 22. As I said earlier, um, we will start a new sermon series in January, but for the next few weeks we'll do some just different sermons and um, just thinking through some things and just skip, skimming around my Bible to be honest with you. Uh we're reminded of a story in 2 Kings, and so we're going to go back and talk about a time that was a long time ago, uh, 900 years before Christ was born. Um, the, the land of Israel was divided into two parts, really, a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah, and these kingdoms were reigned, obviously, by a line of kings. And um, in Second Kings, we have really fast-forwarded about 300 years into this divided kingdom of Israel, if you will. And we come here and find an interesting situation um, where a new king has began to reign, as you see there in verse 1. And his name is Josiah. And to me, what makes this story, you know, begin interesting is the fact that it says there he is eight years old when he begins to reign. I just thought about that for a little bit. Like, how funny would it be if we just put a bunch of eight-year-olds in charge? Who would do that? It feels like we kind of have in some ways. But anyway, um, but yeah, eight-year-olds in charge. And and this kid begins to reign, obviously, you know there was people helping him and things like that but this young man Josiah who starts his reign in a kind of a, a tough situation his father whose name was Amon was actually assassinated he was an evil king a wicked king and he was assassinated uh Josiah's grandfather was named Manasseh he was also a wicked king and so he he begins his reign as as a young age under some just um conflicting circumstances, and yet we're going to see that God blesses him and brings about positivity through his his life as king of Judah. And so what he does, before before we read the text, and before, here's what we're going to read. Josiah decides to do a fundraising campaign, basically, so that they can rebuild the temple. They want to rebuild the temple to kind of just get it straightened out because it it was kind of, you know, it, it needed it. And during those repairs, there's a priest named Hilkiah, who's actually the father of the prophet Jeremiah. But Hilkiah goes in there, and as he's looking around in the, in the temple, he finds something very interesting. He finds the book of the law, which was some of the writings of Moses. Many people believe it was the book of Deuteronomy. He found something very interesting. And so what we're going to do is read the first eight verses and notice how finding God's word brought about a revival among God's people. If you have found 2 Kings 22, verse 1, say, Word. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh, And he did which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shephan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house, which the keepers of the door have gathered to the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord, to repair the breaches of the house. Unto carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hone stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand, because they dealt faithfully. Verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Now, if you're not familiar with this part of biblical history, let me just say, for the most part, it is dark. As you go back and look, the northern kingdom of Israel for hundreds of years had kings and they are almost everyone, maybe everyone, were wicked. There might have been one guy that was like, eh, maybe okay. But they were mostly wicked. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, where Josiah is, the majority of the kings were wicked. So, wicked men leading God's people and, of course, leading them toward wickedness. But it's not really a surprise, especially here in Judah that the people have gone astray from God and that the kings have gone astray from God because the people have not been using the law of God, the word of God. They have lost the word, and so they were failing to live a faithful life. And the application, I hope you see, is clear. That in our day and time, we have turned to wickedness. We have turned away from God as a society, if you will. And one reason we've done that is because we have, in a sense, lost the Word of God. Now, none of us have lost it, have we? We all have a copy, maybe in our laps. You have copies on your phone. I bet in every house, every one of our houses, there are multiple copies of the Bible, isn't there? We have copies of it, but what is our attitude toward it? Do we desire it? Do we see it as important as it should be? Or somewhere along the way... Have we as individuals, families, a church, society, have we lost our focus on the importance of the word? Just like in Josiah's day, if the people of God have a renewed desire for the word, then God will bring about revival in their lives. We see that throughout scripture. We see that throughout church history. What I want to do is give you four ways, four thoughts that can help each of us be revived when it comes to uh, the Word. The first one you see there, it's to reclaim a sense of awe for the Word of God. Have you ever lost something important and you struggle to find it, but once you finally found it, you're excited? That happened to you? For some of you, it's probably every day, right? Your keys your cell phone. The other day, we stopped one night, Jesse and I stopped late one night to get gas in a little town called Sherman. Some of y'all probably heard of it, and and I was wearing an old pair of blue jeans, and I love this. They're a very comfortable pair of jeans. I just can't get rid of them, but the right pocket is not there, right, and so when you put your keys in, they just fall down your leg to the ground, you know, but I know it's there. I've, I've wore them for a couple of years like that, just randomly, and so I, I got gas, you know, it was late that night, we we're tired, whatever, I got gas, and then I i don't know what happened next, I think we were singing a Christmas carols. I had the music blare and singing Christmas songs or something. We get home, we, we go to bed, the next morning I wake up really early, it was like 5 a.m., I got up and I was like, it hit me, do I have my debit card that I used to pay for the gas? So I got, i begin to look around, I keep my card here my phone and my little thing on my phone, and I begin to look for my debit card, I was like, oh no, and the bad thing is, I just got this new debit card like last week because the other one had charges from like Afghanistan. I was like, haven't been there. And so I got this new debit card. And it took like two weeks to get here. And I was like, please tell me I'm not going to have to call the bank, cancel my card, you know, um, get a new card, all that kind of stuff. It's frustrating. And I, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call that gas station. They're open 24 hours. I called them. It was like, again, it was probably 6 a.m. And I was like, look, I, I don't think so, but I may have left my card. And I knew, right? I knew the pocket was messed up. I I was like, I may have. I didn't tell her that. But I was like, that, can you go check the ground and see if there's a debit card out there? And she's like, yeah, I'll check. And I started thinking, it was, it was cold that morning too, and she just did it anyway. She's like, no, I didn't see it. I was like, oh, no, I've lost the debit card. I was like, well, one more time, I'm going to go check my pants pockets, right? So I went, and guess where I found my debit card? In my pants pocket, in the back. I was like, ooh, sorry, sorry, lady. I made her walk out in the freezing cold. But it felt, I was like, I know it's a small thing, it's just a debit card, but I was like, thank the Lord, I don't have to call the bank and do all that stuff. But when we lose something and we find it, we are excited. And Josiah and the people of his day, the priest Hilkiah here, they show us this this reclaiming of excitement and reclaiming of a sense of wonder, a sense of awe toward the word that they had found. As a matter of fact, as we're going to read some more here in a moment, I mean, Josiah begins to bring about changes, the word in them brought about changes in them. Now, read with me in verse 9 through 13. And Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money and that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, hath delivered me a book and Shaphan read it before the king. Verse 11, and it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. That does not mean that he rent his clothes out for someone for a fee. That meant he tore his clothes. He was convicted. He was sad. He was, whoa, where's this book been? How have we not had this book? And he's convicted. And so he They would do that in the old times. They would tear their clothes. We don't really do that much anymore. Um, I'm kind of glad. Verse 12. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Akahem the son of Shaphan, and Akbar the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the servant of the king's, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. As we just read there, do you see how he he reclaimed a sense of awe for the word? He ripped his clothes, he called together the leaders, he said, go to the Lord, Let's, we need to pray, and we need to get back right. And he even, watch this, he recognized that the people before him had not had all things figured out. They had not been living the correct way, they had not understood what they should be doing because they did not have the word, and his life was changed. Again, it, it makes me apply that to our lives. Do we have a sense of all for the word? Or is this book, to us, just another book? I think for many people it is it's just paper and binding for many people but for us who know god this book should mean something shouldn't it mean something second timothy three sixteen says all scripture is inspired of god or by god it's god breathed so let me ask you church a couple of questions do you believe that god is real Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? So if you said yes to both of those questions, what you're saying is this book and the words therein are the revelation that God gives to us. People are always like, I'm looking for a sign. I wish God would do this. I wish God would do that. I wish God would speak to me like this way and that way. And here's the truth. God will speak to you if you'll just open up the Bible and read it, because this is how God speaks. He doesn't speak audibly, or I've yet to hear it. Maybe he does to some, but I've yet to hear it. He speaks through this. He doesn't spell out Scripture in the sky, although he could. He speaks through this. If we believe this is his revelation, it should mean something to us. Carl F.H. Henry was a theologian in the 1900s, and he said, Our generation is lost to the truth of God. We're lost to the reality of His divine revelation and to the content of God's will through His Word. And this loss is paying dearly in a swift relapse into paganism. The world would be a much better place if the Word held a higher standard in the world's eyes. But the world's not supposed to hold the the Word in a high standard. The world is not for God. The the world is not for Christ, but the church is. We are. I've heard people say this in years past. As I was a youth pastor for years, man, they took the Bible out of schools. Like, did they really? Because you can take your Bible to school, kids, and you can read your Bible at school, and you can talk about your Bible at school, where I'm from anyway. And so, yeah, the world may try to push the Bible aside. As believers, we must always be holding it. Look in chapter twenty-three. I think I have that up there for you. Chapter twenty-three. So the first thing was to reclaim a sense of all for the word. Here in chapter twenty-three, the first three verses, we're going to find our second point. It says, "And the king sent and gathered unto him all the elders of Jerusalem, of Judah, and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets." And all the people, both small and great, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul. To perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And none of the people stood to the covenant. Oh wait, did I misread that? And all the people stood to the covenant. The second point I want you to see that will help us revive ourselves around the word. Is to recognize the authority of the word. You know. Josiah could have said here, as he gathered the people together, he could have just said, you know what, we found the book of the law, but that's just for the, you know, that was old, that's an old book. We've made it this far without it. Do we really need it? He could have said that. But that was not his, what happened. That's not what God did to him through this, seeing the word. He recognized this word held great authority. It held authority to to guide them in holiness and righteousness and so he brought the people together he read the book to them he said to them we're going to obey this we're going to start applying this to our our land and he made this covenant with all his heart and mind and soul and the people joined with him simply put they recognized the importance of the law there's a i think a pattern of biblical illiteracy that can happen to us and has happened of course in our land but I think it, it is first to lower the view of Scripture. Any person, any family, any church who lowers their view of Scripture will soon after fall into sin of many sorts. And so there's these conferences that have been held over the last hundreds of years about the inerrancy of Scripture, how it, it truly is God's Word because people who don't believe will, will try to attack some of the things in the Bible, And once they're able to kind of undermine the Bible, then they can begin to undermine other doctrines. And so we must understand and hold to a high authority of Scripture. Because here's the pattern. Once you lower the emphasis on the Bible as authoritative, then the next thing that will happen is you'll begin to ignore it. Or, we can say it this way, church, if we lower our emphasis on the importance of Scripture The next generation will begin to ignore it. After they ignore it, they will begin to neglect it. And after they neglect it, they will all but abandon it. If you don't believe me, there are churches meeting right now. There are churches meeting today who call themselves churches where the preacher will stand up and not have this with him. Or even a version of it, not even have electronics, just standing up saying his opinions and saying his thoughts, not this. There are churches like that, and they started somewhere with a a low view of the authority of Scripture. Let me ask you, as we apply this to us again, what is your ultimate authority for faith and practice? What guides your life? Is it the Scripture or something else? I think for many of us, oftentimes, it's just ourself. It's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. That sounds fun, right? I'll just do what I want to do. But as Christians, can we always just do what we want to do? We shouldn't, should we? There's some things that we might want to do that the Scripture says don't do that, and so you don't do it. There's some things we don't want to do, the Scripture says do that, and so we should do it. Go back with me, by the way. I don't know if you caught this. Look in chapter 22 again, in verse 2. And it's speaking here positively of Josiah, and it's saying that he, he did that which was right in the sight of God. And he walked in the ways of David, which, by the way, is a positive thing in this sense, to walk in the uh, ways of of David. But I just kind of made a, a connection here between 22-2 and over in 23. When Josiah's main focus in 22 is how he's walking in the ways of David, but what we see here is he's walking in the ways of the word, of the law. What's your Authority of faith and practice. I know people who say, I follow pastor so-and-so. It might be a, a in-person pastor. It might be a TV pastor. And, hey, that's good. That's good to you know have people you read after or people that you listen to that are good. But the word must be our final authority in all things. Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Chapter 23 again. Find verse 21. We'll move to our third point, and it's to rest in the sufficiency of the word. 23, find verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not hold in such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was holden to the Lord in Jerusalem. Now I'm just going to kind of say this quickly here. Um, We can read verse 24 as well. Look at verse 24. I like this verse because it has the word wizards in there. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord if nothing else in those few verses you see changes happened he said let's get the Passover going let's get rid of the sinful things the evil things he made changes the word led him and he rested in the sufficiency of scripture he could have as king led any way he wanted to but when god's word got a hold of his heart and his life the law got a hold of his life he knew there's change there were changes that need to be made and he was willing to make those changes i really apply this to church by the way and any church you're at or part of Um, people always say, we need to do this or do that. We need to sing this or sing that. Preach this or preach that. We need to spend money on this and spend money on that. And all those things are okay, by the way, in in different ways. Those things can be fine. But one thing we must understand, that to be a good church, there's really a couple of of things we need, and that's the Word of God, prayer, and people. (laughs) That's really it. Really? I mean, we don't even really need a guitar. We don't need a nice pulpit. We don't even need this building, to be honest with you, do we? We don't don't have to have it to be a church. We're thankful to have those things, but we need to kind of just remember that the Word is sufficient for life and for ministry. It's enough for for us to reach people, to disciple people, and to mobilize people. And To rest in the sufficiency of the Word, and if we truly do that, we will never become a church that thinks we must entertain people, right? Or put on a show for people. And to be honest with you, in my younger ministry, I did not rest in the sufficiency of the Word because I thought I had to be a little more entertaining or a little more creative or a little more cutting-edge. Like the one time I told y'all about in my early twenties, when I dressed up like a vampire and preached to my youth group I'm on the blood of Jesus—the one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> well, the long blonde wig. This is like what was the movie called? Joe Dirt. No, not Joe Dirt. The movie was it? Brad Pitt, the old vampire? <laughs> no, Cooper's way before your time. Interview with the vampire. That sounds right. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I promise you, I have actually repented in prayer for that. That was an awful thing to do. But you're laughing, but there are people today, grown men, in their 60s preaching in ways where they bring random stuff on stage and instead of preaching the Word, thinking they need to entertain the crowd or amuse the crowd or somehow draw people in with random silly costumes, for example, and yet... I thank, the God, I thank the Lord that I learned through some godly men and through the Word that this is sufficient. Even if I'm up here mispronouncing names and stumbling over stuff, the preaching of the Word is sufficient. As a matter of fact, if you, if you came to me and said, you know what, help me, you know, if you said, I want to go to a new, new church, help me find a new church, I would say this to you. The number one thing you need to make sure they do is that the preaching of the Word is the main thing. That needs to be it. Well, they don't have this going on. They don't have this or that. I don't care. Do they preach the word first and foremost. We need to rest in the sufficiency of that. We need to be hearing it. We heard it as Dusty shared this morning. We heard it through song. We pray, we're praying it and we're preaching it. We need to rest in the sufficiency. Number four, my final point this morning We need to reveal the totality of the word. Reveal the totality of the word. I'll explain that, but first let's read verse 25 of chapter 23. It says, And like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to the law of Moses, neither after him, arose there any like him it's pretty good isn't it that's a pretty good testimony i wish i could have a testimony kind of like that in some ways that he with all his heart all his soul with all his might turn to the lord but notice what it says according to the law of moses we want to make sure we turn to the lord according to the law so what do I mean when I say reveal the totality here? Of course, you see in verse 25, he uses the word all a few times. All his heart, all his soul, all his might, according to all the law. You see it, I think, three or four times there in verse 25. That word all is key here as we show that the word is important in all of our lives. Let me give you four quick aspects of point number four. As we want to reveal the word in all of life, the first one is that it must be a priority in all areas of life. At home, church, how we we do different things, it must be a part. The second one is that we need to make sure we know the big picture of the word. I I challenge you to to study the Bible and, and know the Bible, not just on Sunday mornings, not just on Wednesday nights, but in your off time as well. A third thing is we must rightly divide the truth, the word of truth, in preaching, in counsel, and discussion. Um, that must be an utmost importance for us. And watch me. You're like, okay, preacher, that's your job. Rightly divide the truth. But no, you might be in the back having a conversation with someone about the word, and you want to make sure you're rightly dividing it as you share it with someone else. You want to make sure you're telling truth we need to keep asking and discovering the answer to this question what does the bible say what does the bible say we need to ask that question all the time i'm dealing with this in my marriage well what does the bible say about it how do we do this in church what does the bible say should i do this what does the bible say and the fourth one is we need to systematically preach and listen to the word there's a, I don't think I put it there, but there's a a type of preaching called expository preaching, and it's what I attempt to do every week, and sometimes I, I certainly fall short. But expository preaching is when the preacher exposes the text. It, expository preaching means the Bible is the main subject, not the preacher's opinions, the preacher's thoughts. Have you ever heard a preacher do this? Have you ever, have you ever heard a preacher get up? read a verse, close his Bible, and then rant for 30 minutes on something not related to the Scripture? I heard a guy one time, I don't remember what verse. He read a verse, closed the Bible, for like an hour, he walked around and told a soccer story, for like an hour. But he was pretty engaging, but at the end, I was like, that had nothing to do with the Scripture (laughs) at all. We need to make sure, and, and we do through expository preaching, that the Word is the main text, and the preacher is just the mouthpiece for this text. I'm going to make sure we do that, because when we do that, we're trusting in God's power over pragmatism. We're trusting in God's conviction over our comfort, and we are seeking something that produces disciples over decisions. We could preach different styles. I certainly could do it, where I make people in our church make decisions. We could do that. But a lot of times, when you do that, you get a lot of decisions with very shallow disciples. And preaching expositorily through the word, you may not see as many public decisions, but Lord willing, you're going to see people grow as disciples. That's the goal. That's our goal. And so, I would encourage us as a church, from time to time, yes. There may be a topical sermon where you take a topic and you go through the scripture and that's fine from time to time but our that's kind of like a that's kind of like a uh, a special meal you know a topical sermon kind of like a little special meal but our steady daily diet our weekly Sunday morning diet needs to be to go through books of the Bible in context and asking God to speak to us and that's what we're going to do so let's look at these four things again in conclusion as we saw saw some things from this king josiah um, we need to reclaim a sense of awe for the word does it mean something to you hope it does we need to recognize the authority of the word maybe this morning you need to repent and say you know i haven't been allowing the word to lead and guide me i've been just leading myself maybe you need to just repent and say god help me help me to surrender myself back under the authority of your word that everything i hear everything i read as best i can i'm going to apply the third one maybe someone this morning needs to rest in the sufficiency of the word in other words stop struggling stop striving to try to always figure out what to do and instead say i'm just going to trust what god tells me here as he helps me and then number four we need to reveal the totality of the word in our lives I think these are four interesting points and good points that I've kind of drawn from this text. And here is the reality. These things will not happen in our church if they don't happen in our lives. If you want to see any of these things in the church, they must first begin in you, right, and in me. we must make this an important thing. And I was reading, um, as I do often on Spurgeon, and S- Charles Spurgeon loved reading the Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? A few people probably have. If you haven't, I would highly recommend you read The children's, Pro- the Pilgrim's Progress. There's a great children's version for kids. I think kids should read it. Great book. And Spurgeon said, I read somewhere, he said he read it like a hundred times. Uh, so it was one of his favorite books. And he loved the guy that wrote it, uh, Bunyan. And he said that, um, he said, talking one day about John Bunyan, he said, if you cut John Bunyan with a knife, he would bleed Scripture. And I like that quote. If you cut me, it's probably just going to be blood. But, but I like the, this figurative, obviously. If you cut John Bunyan with a knife, he would bleed Scripture. I hope we can continue to grow to the place where Scripture is in our hearts, it's on our minds, and it's on our lips that we're able to speak to people with the, the compassion of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, that it would just encompass our lives. And as I say to you often, may we get into the Word. Can you all finish it? Until the Word gets in us. Let's pray.